All right, we're in Luke chapter 1. Thank you, for Kylie, for the reading this morning. You see, the Apostle Paul, when he goes out on his missionary journeys all over the world, he never traveled alone. Even when he wanted to go into the Asian province and the Holy Spirit stopped him, there was a vision of a man in Macedonia. And in Acts chapter 16 and verse 10, there is a text that's kind of interesting. This is, this is 16 chapters into the book of Acts. And go ahead and put up this text, Jeff. It's Acts 16 and 10. It says this, after Paul had seen the vision, we... Who's the we? Got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, this is in the book of Acts. So what we have presumably going on here is that the partner of Paul is Luke. And Luke now, as he's writing the book of Acts, he wrote Luke and Acts, he refers to we. Luke, in fact, stays with Paul to the very end of Paul's life. Now, we know and from other texts like Colossians chapter 4 and verse 14 that Luke was a doctor. And I suspect based on other readings and writings of Paul, that there were at times that Paul needed a doctor. He talks about his physical condition in several passages. Luke was there. And and then I want us to think for just a moment, there is several different moving sections of Scripture, particularly in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul, when he's now in Rome, is in a dark, dank Roman prison where he is awaiting his execution, and I want us to listen to this text in 2 Timothy, what Paul says, some, some, just some wonderfully amazing words. First, he says, as he writes this letter to Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. And he's gone to Thessalonica and Crescens has gone to Galatia, and Titus has gone to Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. I wouldn't be surprised if Luke was there when and if Paul was executed in Rome. So Luke was a missionary, and he was a doctor, and he was a loyal companion of Paul, and, and, and though not an eyewitness of Jesus, like some of the disciples, like maybe Matthew, if we think of Matthew's gospel, or Peter, or John, for instance, rather, Luke was one with all of his capabilities and competencies interviewed the eyewitnesses. And that's what Luke 1 through 4 tells us. He was an historian. And so when Paul 
then writes in the book of Colossians about his non-Jewish co-workers, Luke is on that list. So there's one more thing about Luke, that he is a Gentile, a non-Jew. And I believe that's significant in the way that he writes his gospel and the way he organizes it and in what he emphasizes in his gospel. While Matthew begins the story with Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, and with the Jewishness of Jesus, Luke goes all the way back to Adam. Luke's book stresses that Jesus is Savior for all humankind, including us. Gentiles. Remember in Luke chapter 2 and verse 32, Simeon cries out, a light for revelation to the Gentiles or to the nations. So a good question as we read and reflect and consider Luke's gospel. And you know what? There's a lot of chapters in Luke's gospel. We're going to be in this series for a long time. I don't mean that we'll always stay just with uh, the particulars of, the, of this series. We might take some breaks in between and do some other, you know, short series, but then we'll come back. I want to work through, as a congregation, have us work through this gospel, emphasizing the head and the hands and the heart of Jesus. I think uh, Luke's storytelling perspective is uh, certainly going to be impressive, as we'll see as we open up this text. But it raises another question, and I think, hope that you saw that in the reading, in, the, in our reading from Luke 1, 1 through 4, that is, who did Luke write to? Because Luke says he writes to Theophilus. And I want to tell you right now that all the scholars in the world can't tell us exactly who that is. I want to suggest uh, just a f- couple of possibilities, but none original to me and none, none of which are definitive. And that is that he writes, he says, to, to Theophilus, and there was a high priest about the same name, of the same name, who served from A.D. 37 through 41, and he's mentioned by the great historian Josephus. However, I think that would put this writing way too early, and I don't know that that makes sense uh, particularly for that to be so close to the time of Jesus' death when all the events of the book of Acts wouldn't have happened yet. Others suggest that Theophilus was a Roman official, and, 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 and that's kind of an interesting way of thinking about it, particularly because G- Luke is so Gentile in his orientation, and maybe uh, one who is uh, a, a, an official was involved in Paul's trial, if you could imagine that. And it explains the address, because in our text it says about Theophilus, most honorable or most excellent. That's a formal title, and I think it's noteworthy because it indicates that Luke had someone specific in mind, or he wouldn't have used that type of of terminology. And so that seems likely to me, but I think there's one other way that we could see this. How about this? Theophilus means, now I don't know where you're coming from this morning, but I want you to hear this. Theophilus means lover of God. Could Theophilus be you and you and you and you and you? 
Luke writing to us. This fits the description. And in verse 4, he says this, I am writing, go ahead and put that text up, Jeff, if you wouldn't mind, Luke 1 and 4. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly, orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Here's why. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. I cannot think of a more important time than now for us to reinforce the certainty of the core of our faith. And I just love this gospel. I've been reading through it, and I want to invite you to read through it. And uh, it, there, I love the other gospels too, don't get me wrong, but I love, I know, I, I got a lot of some favorite children, okay? But uh, each one of them is special in their own way, but there are just some themes in Luke's gospel that I think are so, so powerful. And I, I want to invite you to think, get your mind engaged as you begin to read and as we do that this summer. Uh, following Jesus is a theme. From the calling of the disciples, uh, following from Galilee to, to Jerusalem, from the cradle to the cross. That long journey to Jerusalem is a theme of Luke's gospel. And it's a long journey of being a learner, of being of a discoverer, of, of coming to grips with trying to understand who is God and who is this Jesus and who am I in relation to all of this. And of course, Luke is inviting us to follow. And then, and then prayer is a theme, more so than any of the other Gospels. There are nine prayers of Jesus are recorded in Luke. Seven of them are not in any of the other Gospels. And all the big events, of course, are covered. Jesus' baptism, His calling of His disciples, the transfiguration, the sending of the 70, the preparation for the cross, time in the garden, time on the cross. Then the miraculous is a theme everywhere. Often a, those who are sick appropriately couched in medical terminology, Jesus has the power to heal. And we read it and we see it again and again. Then there is the, what I would call the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. As someone once said, those who should, don't. And those who should not, do. And you'll see that again and again. You think about that phrase. Those who should, don't. And those who should not, do. And this alone will leave your head reeling and your heart spinning as you try to understand God's kingdom. And finally, I want to suggest that mercy is a theme. One of the reasons that it's so important for us to be a welcoming, receiving, accepting congregation is because mercy 
is at the heart of God, at the heart of this book, at the heart of the life of Jesus. Luke 1.50 in the passage that Jeremy referenced at the beginning of worship. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. All right, so Luke listens and he interviews and he collects stories and he collates them and, and I can imagine him uh, hearing from Zachariah's friends and from the shepherds and from Joseph. Can you imagine interviewing Mary and getting her take on all the events that had transpired and happened in her life? And he interviews the people in the hometown and those in Capernaum and those who were with the boy in the temple and the disciples and the parents of the girl who had died and even the Pharisees. And they talked about their encounters with the Savior in their way and he wrote down these stories. And there's one unmistakable response that takes place again and again as you read through Luke's story of Jesus. At the top of the list is a word that I hope will capture your imagination, your heart, your hand, head, your hands. It's the word amazed. Amazed. In the Greek language, there are five terms that can be used for amazed. Luke uses all five. Everyone was amazed at the things he was doing. Luke 9 and verse 43. From the shepherds at his birth to the disciples to the empty tomb to many who encounter him and in between this version NIV says, and they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Let me point out some of the synonyms for that word amazed. Astonished, in awe, afraid, spellbound, astounded. Someone who consistently provokes this response in others is worth getting to know, don't you think? You see, when Jesus encounters others, it transforms someone's life and then changes the attitudes in those around him. I was thinking about my, my own life. In my own experiences, what is comparable to these, these kinds of words that the man of Nazareth generates? You know, what was it when I was in, uh, when I was in Kenya and I stood on the equator and I thought, this is amazing. But after a few minutes, it wasn't really all that amazing. I was amused and then I accepted it. When I saw the pyramids in person... I was amazed. What an incredible engineering feat, and how did those things get there? But after a while, I could not sustain my amazement. It's a hard quality to retain over time. 
So I was off to see the Nile River. And the Nile, too, is amazing. But after a bit, it becomes somewhat of a predictably huge conduit of water. Is Jesus like this? No doubt He is amazing, and most of us knew this at one point in our life, but at other points, we, we, might, have, we might have lost it, and then maybe we got some renewed clarity about it, some, some conviction. I want us to be reading and praying over the text and talking to others to be able to say, yes, Jesus is amazing. We have a lot of competition. We live in this highly charged, impressive world with resources and opportunities and knowledge and discoveries. And hey, you're going to the air show today? It's amazing! Amusement that is unknown in the history of the world. So there's lots of competition for this Galilean peasant. Have your encounters with Jesus and the greatness of God cooled over time? Have your reactions to the Savior been kind of crusted over by the accretions of culture and technology and religion and time and distraction and sin? Our aim in this series is to seek Him afresh, to rediscover the sense of amazement, to find again one who holds wisdom like no other, who still changes lives at the deepest level just as He has since the first century. And I believe the Gospel of Luke is a good guide to help you and this church find its way. Now, coming out of COVID, we want to have better programs. We want to do things like we did last week where we put our faith into action with pray and go, and that was, a, that was just a great and wonderful experience out in the neighborhood, and we want to keep that ministry going. We'll have some other opportunities to do that over the course of this summer. We want to get our vision statements in place. We want to be able to outline our priorities. And the elders are working on this now to uh, help us post-COVID. That is all important. However, the deepest issue, I believe, is related to this one thing. In your life, in your family, in your activities, in your dis decision-making, in your day-to-day -day choices, in your interests, in your demands, do you find Him amazing? I think we're at a point in our country, in our churches, in our families, in our own troubled and selfish hearts 
Whereas John the Baptist said, I must become less. He must become more. Otherwise, as John wrote on the island of Patmos, the lampstand will be taken away. What if you could say with steady and growing confidence, like so many of those eyewitnesses that have gone before, I am amazed. I'm in awe. I'm afraid. I'm spellbound. I'm astounded. Is he not amazing? And that as part of your response, you listen. You listen to him. You begin to follow him more closely with your head, with your heart, and with your hands. God's blessing on you and this church this week.